Paul writes, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Uh, the passage that we're looking at today is a passage where sin abounds. We're actually going to be talking about some heavy subjects today because the passage raises some heavy subjects. Abuse of power, coercive sexual sin. And I realized that in raising these uh, topics, the reality is, the tragic reality, is that every one of us has been affected by these sins, either directly or because someone else that is one degree away from us has been directly. And so that means that all of our lives have been affected by them. So these are difficult things to talk about, to hear about, and yet we need to talk about them because, because they're pervasive in our world and because God cares and he has not been silent about them. They're in his word. And so I, I want you to know that I'm talking about this today, not to open old wounds, but to point you to God and his grace. And so as we do that, let me, with that in mind, let me pray for us. God, as we look at this heavy text, this famous, infamous story, we need to see Jesus. We need to see grace abound all the more. And so you show us that. And would you come to us, ascended Christ, in all your tender mercy. Thank you that you have risen on high and that you intercede for us and that you are not immune from the weaknesses, the struggles, and the temptations that we face. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, it was a spring afternoon. The winter chill had thawed, and Bathsheba went outside to take a bath. The buildings, I'm sure, were still warm from the day's sun. Her husband Uriah was off fighting a battle because in springtime, that's what nations did. They took back up the business of war. And Uriah, you see, he was a green beret in David's army. He was one of David's mighty men, a loyal companion of the Lord's anointed. And she was used to this. She actually grew up with this. We see her father. Her father, Eliam, he also was one of David's mighty men, David's loyal fighters. And so they are off at war, and she is home, taking a bath. David wasn't off at war, however. See, he had gotten to the point in his career where he had worked very hard. The generals were trained, the armies were strong, and he could delegate his responsibilities and so while they were off at war, he could be back home and take it easy. So easy, in fact, that that afternoon is when he got up. Whether he was just getting up from a siesta or that's when he got up that day, we're not sure. But we know that life was pretty leisurely. And as he got up, he starts moseying around on his rooftop. He overlooks 
the city, and as he looks down, he sees her, Bathsheba. He doesn't recognize her, though he should have. He's so close with her father and her husband. And so then he inquires about her. Then he sends for her. Then he sleeps with her. And then in very straightforward, very simple language, verse 5 tells us the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Three words that have rocked many couples, changed many lives. Some turn to ecstatic joy. Others, like in this case, deep sorrow. At that point, David has a choice. It's the choice that all of us face when we have failed. He can either own his failure, own his sin, or he can hide. He chooses the latter. In verse 6, he schemes a plan. He invites Uriah Bathsheba's husband home from the war. He asked him, how is the war going? Uriah tells him, how's the war going? And David assumes that while Uriah is on furlough, he's going to connect with his wife Bathsheba and David can cover his tracks. But the plan didn't work. You see, that night, Uriah, he didn't go back home. He went and he slept with David's servants. The next day, David says, wait, Uriah, why? Why didn't you go back home? Why weren't you go to be with your wife? I mean, you've been out for so long. You've been fighting. I mean, why not take a bath? Why not relax? And Uriah says, how can I go and sleep in my house when God's ark and God's armies are sleeping in tents. You see, David assumed that Uriah was like him. But Uriah was not like him. And so David tries again. He has him back over. He winds him. He dines him. He gets Uriah drunk. And he thinks, surely he's going to go and connect with his wife tonight. And yet again... Uriah does not go to Bathsheba. And as one commentator put it, drunk Uriah is more pious than sober David. So now David has a choice. It's a choice that we all face. It's the choice that some of us are facing right now. Does he own up to his sin? Or does he hide? And David, he doubles down. He writes a letter. He writes a, a letter to his chief general, Joab. He seals the letter. He gives it to Uriah, and he sends him back to the battle. Included in that letter are instructions for Joab to put Uriah on the front lines and then withdraw the troops, securing his death. In other words, Uriah goes back to battle with his death orders in his hand. 
And whether he knew it or not, we don't know. But he couldn't get out of it either way. He breaks that seal, he's a dead man. He doesn't break that seal, he's a dead man. He's a dead man either way. But the plan didn't work out as cleanly as David had hoped. You see, there was no way that Joab could put Uriah on the front lines and withdraw everyone without it being suspicious. And, and so Joab, he knew that the plot had to be, the, the, the um, conspiracy needed to be covered up. You had to hide it. And so he couldn't withdraw the whole unit. He had to put a whole unit in the place where the fighting was fierce. And so it wasn't just Uriah that would die. Others died as well. Joab thinks David is going to be angry. He sends a messenger back to tell David. He says, listen, he's going to be angry when you tell him the story and we tell him about the loss and all the loss of life and how messy things got. But remind him at the end that Uriah, your servant, is dead also. But you know what? David wasn't angry. In fact, in one of the most chilling scenes in all of literature, David says this in verse 25 to the messenger. Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage Joab. Well, Bathsheba receives word that her husband has died. She goes into mourning. After she mourns, David takes her into his own house. He marries her. She bears him a son who eventually dies. This is a tragic story. It's a horrible story. It's a story in which sin abounds. I mean, consider all the ways in which sin abounds in this story. First, sin abounds through David's success. See, verse 2 tells us that it happened. It just happened. And that's how sin feels, like it just happens. But, you know, in Romans chapter 7, we have one of the most descriptive accounts of sin as we have anywhere in the Bible, in Romans 7, chapter 8, tells us that sin seizes an opportunity. And here, sin seized an opportunity in David's success. We are um, in a place with lots of beautiful hikes around us. Some of you are hikers, you love to go hiking. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, no friend of Christianity, he was also a hiker. And he described life as a hike. And he said this, We seldom break our legs so long as life continues a toilsome upward climb. The danger comes when we begin to take things easy and choose the convenient paths. You know what he's talking about. I mean, whether you're riding a bike, maybe you're a mountain biker, whether you're a skier, whether you're a runner or a hiker, it's not in the technical parts that we get injured. No, because that's where we're paying attention. No, when we fall is when we're, we're taking it easy on the easy parts because then we're not paying attention at all. We lose our focus. 
And it's the same here. It's the same with sin. David is at his best when he is on the run, insecure, in the wilderness, vulnerable. It's when he is in the palace, when he's insecure, when he's secure, when he can take things easy. That's when he falls. Some of you are in a, a very successful place in life. You've worked hard. You've set things up. You can delegate your responsibilities. You've got passive income coming in. You're semi-retired. Watch out. Sin seizes an opportunity often in our success. Not because success is wrong, but because it's in our success that that we stop pursuing God's, we stop pursuing God's call in our life. You see, David stopped waking up in the morning and asking the question, God, what would you have me do for you today? What good would you have me do for you today? No, he wakes up in the afternoon and he lounges around. Some of you aren't in that place, but that's what you want. You just want to be successful. Watch out. As I have watched, let me say this, some of you, some of you are not there. Some of you, some of you are struggling. And life is just, seems like it's kicking you in the teeth over and over and over again. And it's hard and you wonder where is God? Have you ever considered that actually he may be being gracious to you? As I've watched ministry colleagues, one after another, who were successful, completely implode and their lives unravel, most at a distance, I've learned to say, God, thanks for the hard times. Thanks that things weren't easy. Thanks for keeping me dependent on you. Thanks for the struggle for keeping me close because that's how I knew that he was loving me and he was protecting me. Sometimes the most gracious thing that God can do for us is not give us success because sin seizes an opportunity in success. And it's not just material success. It's also in our spiritual success. I mean, think about who this is. It's David. David, the author of most of the Psalms. David, the hymn writer of Israel. David, who we call a man after God's own heart. David, and yet David fails miserably. Which reminds us of something. You never graduate from God's school of discipleship, ever. You know, we tend to think when people are young and immature as Christians, that's when they need lots of attention. That's when we need to disciple them. That's when we should take care of them, right? But those who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, oh, they'll be okay. No! Over and over, there are too many examples in the Bible. David, Solomon, there's two. Peter, another. Of people who have walked with Jesus for a while and would be quote-unquote mature saints. And that's when they fall. And that's when they fail miserably. We never graduate from the school of discipleship. I'm not even sure we make it to first grade. Kindergarten is the place where we need to stay. 
sitting and learning at Jesus' feet, dependent on him. You know, that does remind us something, that this is David, and that he fails miserably, that maybe this book is not the book that many of us think that it is. See, some of us, we read the Bible and we think that what we're supposed to get out of this is moral lessons in how to make ourselves right before God and be acceptable to him so that we can go to heaven when we die. And yet here we have David, who is supposed to be this hero, this spiritual giant, and he is. And he is supposed to be this theologian, and he is. He's the one who Paul quotes when he goes to learn about justification. He's who Luther first learned justification from, not Paul. It was the Psalms. It was David. And we think, and yet he failed. Right. One of, one of my bands, hometown bands, that I listened to a lot growing up and still is uh, named Lucero. You can't listen to them without earplugs. Or you'll have ears like me and tinnitus, and tinnitus. One of their lines, they say, what if all my heroes are the losing type? Yes. All my heroes are the losing type, save one. And David is the losing type. This book is not about moral heroes and examples. This book is about sin abounding and demolishing and destroying our world. And it's about the grace of God in Jesus Christ abounding even more, super abounding in creating things anew. That's what this book is about. We see that sin abounds through success. Second, we see that sin abounds through power. Growing up, as I read this story, the focus was all on sexual sin and David's sexual sin. But the more I've studied it, the more I realized that sexual sin is not actually the focus of this story. Now, let me be clear. In the Bible, we are told plenty about the evils of sexual sin. But the focus of this story is not on sexual sin. It's actually on the misuse of power. In fact, the, the story is brilliantly crafted, and it's crafted in such a way that it, um, it draws to our minds the story of Adam and Eve falling in the garden. You see, just as Adam and Eve saw a beautiful piece of fruit and they took it, so David sees a beautiful woman, verse 2, and he takes her, verse 4. You see, what happened to Adam and Eve happened to David. They started, Adam and Eve were made kings and priests to God. They were given so much and so much power and so much authority because they were made in his image and likeness. They were to steward his power and represent it to the whole earth. And yet they started to become entitled. They thought, well, we're gardeners. Why shouldn't we have any fruit in the garden? Why not that fruit? And David, he became entitled. I'm a king. Why shouldn't I be able to do what I want with any subject of the kingdom? Whenever we forget that all is grace, that we are stewards, and that God owns everything, We will use and misuse and abuse God's good creation in all its forms. 
whenever we forget that we are parents, that we are stewards of our children, we can abuse our power. Whenever we forget teachers that we are stewards over the classroom that we have been given, we can abuse our power. Whenever we forget that we are stewards over our bodies, we can abuse our power. When pastors forget that we are stewards of the mysteries of God, we can abuse our power. See, when we start to feel entitled, we will start to believe that we can do whatever we want with our time, our money, our bodies, and with other people. Throughout this passage, David treats people as commodities. Bathsheba's name is introduced in verse 3. You know the next time that we hear her name? Chapter 12, verse 24. In the in-between time, she's just called the woman. Why does the narrator not say Bathsheba's name throughout the rest of the passage? Because he wants to make a point. Bathsheba has been dehumanized, depersonalized, and objectified. She is passive throughout this entire narrative. Completely passive. The only word she speaks is, I am pregnant. Verse 4 says that she is taken. See, what happened to Bathsheba happened to her. The sad reality, the tragic reality, is it's happened to some of you as well. And I want you to know that it's not your fault any more than it was Bathsheba's fault. David treats Bathsheba as a commodity, an object to be used. And it's not just Bathsheba that he treats this way. He treats Uriah this way. He treats Joab this way. Joab is a general with a gun to his head. He treats all the old other soldiers that die this way. See, they are simply expendable commodities in David's pursuits. And so this passage raises the searching question for each and every one of us. Because if it can happen to David, it can happen to us. Where have I viewed others as expendable commodities? Where have I viewed my coworkers as an expendable commodity? Where have I viewed other family members, people who I live with, as an expendable commodity? Where have I viewed those with whom I worship as an expendable commodity? It starts there. And when it is combined with power, it's deadly, as this passage shows us. Sin abounds through an abuse of power. Third, sin abounds through multiplication. There is a progression here. It starts with David's sloth as he moseys around on the roof and he doesn't pursue his calling. And then he starts to feel entitled. This leads to an abuse of power, which leads to adultery, and it is adultery which leads to lying and murder 
I mean, David breaks, as one commentator said, five of the Ten Commandments here. And it's like compounding one after another. Walter Scott said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we start to practice to deceive. The point is that you can't just tell one lie. It's like they build one after another after another like Pinocchio, right? It's like when you start a new hobby. I'm going to pick on myself because I have started a new hobby in the last couple of years. I took up surfing and I thought, man, those surfboards are expensive and they are. And I thought, okay, but I, I like this. I'm going to do it. So I buy my surfboard, right? Because I've got my money set aside and I buy my surfboard and, and now we're good, right? And then I thought, wait a second, I got to get the surfboard to the beach. So then I got to get a rack. Okay. Racks on your car are not inexpensive. They're like as much as a surfboard. So then you buy a rack on the car and then I'm like, okay, I get to the beach and then I'm like, ah, now I need a wetsuit because the ocean's pretty cold. And I don't just need a wetsuit for the spring and the fall when it's warm. I need a wetsuit for the winter. I need a, like, and then you're like, okay, now I need multiple wetsuits. And then I bring the surfboard home and I'm like, where do I store it? Well, I stored it in my garage, but where do I put the other stuff that was in my garage? Now I need a shed. So I got to get a surfboard, I got to get multiple wetsuits, I got to get a roof rack, I got to get a shed. Uh, next thing I know, like I'm going, you know, this whole rack thing is kind of annoying. Maybe I just need a pickup truck. <laughs> so that's what happens when you start a hobby. It's like, it's like it snowballs one thing after another, after another, after another. It's the same way with sin. When you commit a sin, and you get in, then you sin again, then you sin again, then you sin, and it's like one leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, and the next thing you know, it's a snowball, and your life is unraveling. That's what happens to David. Sin abounds through multiplication. Sin begets more sin, so you have to cut it off immediately. Otherwise, you'll have no idea how deep you are. Which leads to the fourth thing that we see is that sin abounds through de desensitization. You know, this passage in this story, it invokes a lot of feelings, but no one's feelings mentioned are mentioned anywhere in this passage. Yes, it says that Bathsheba went into mourning, but that is a ritual. It could have said that she wept, it doesn't. Why? Because sin numbs us. We become desensitized to it. And the most chilling, callous verse is when David responds to the messenger about what to say to Joab. And he says, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one and now another. I mean, that is so cold. He doesn't even grieve the loss of his soldiers in life. He's not even like, oh. It's just like, you know, it's life. There are losses. You have to accept them and move on. There is an ancient way that a story that's told about uh, an ancient way of killing wolves. It's called using uh, the blood knife. Maybe some of you have heard this. Basically, you take blood and you freeze it on a knife and then you freeze it again and again and again until it creates layers, lots of layers on this knife. And then you stick it in the ground. What happens is then a wolf smells this um, blood and they come up and they start licking the blood. And they lick and they lick and they lick. And as they're devouring this blood, you know, uh, their own tongue becomes desensitized. It's numb. 
And eventually they lick all the way through the blood that's frozen on the knife and they're cutting their own tongue, devouring their own blood, drinking their own blood, but they don't even know it anymore because they are so desensitized to it. David is drinking his own blood. He has become so desensitized to his sin, and he thinks that he can control it, I'm sure. I'm sure he thought he was in control. We're not in control. One sin leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, and you can't stop, and before you know it, people's lives are destroyed, and not just other people's. David's life is destroyed. And it unravels after this. And look what's happened to him. He doesn't even care about his loyal followers, about his mighty men, about his armies. This is not the David that we saw in the wilderness. He has changed. Sin has changed him. This is a passage in which sin abounds. But Paul writes, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And you're thinking, where does grace abound here? You know, sometimes it can be very, very, very difficult to see grace abounding. When we're up close and personal with sin that is just destroying our lives and the lives of those we love, it can be very hard to see grace anywhere. It's hard to see it in this passage. I'll admit that. But it does come. It comes in the last line. Up until the last line, there is no mention of God anywhere in the passage. But in verse 27, God gets the last word. It says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Throughout this passage, we have seen David call evil good in his eyes. Evil things throughout this passage are, are shown to be good in the eyes of David. And we're thinking, wait, is David's eyes all that matter? Are David's eyes all that matter? Is that all that counts in the world? Is sin just going to run rampant? Is it going to abound and abound and abound and abound? Is anything going to stop this? Yes. God sees and God cares. And God is going to do something about it. God sees. He sees you. He sees the evil of this world. And in his time and in his way, he will punish evil. And he will not let sin trump his purposes. And sometimes it takes a long time to see that. It would take a long time for anyone to see how this story how in this story grace could abound. But when we open up the New Testament to the first page, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we see tucked into that genealogy these words, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, by Bathsheba. And we see that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
God was still working out his purposes. God was doing far more through grace than sin could ever do through David. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, this is Ascension Sunday. This is the Sunday that we celebrate that Jesus Christ, the one who lived for us and who died for us, has ascended on high. And he is the great shepherd of the sheep. And here's what you need to know about Jesus. He is not one who uses and abuses people. He is not one who treats us as commodities. But he is one who has all power and all authority. And how does he use it? He uses it to humble himself, to serve us. He took on the form of a slave. And he didn't consider his own power, his own authority as something to be exploited for his own advantage. But rather, he humbled himself and he served us even to the point of death, death on a cross. And God has lifted him up so that he now has all rule and all power and all authority. He controls the nations and controls history and our destiny. And he is gentle and he is lowly and he is tender and he is humble and he is gracious and he is compassionate and he sees you. And a bruised reed he will not break. And that's good news. His grace will win. Where sin abounds, anywhere and everywhere that sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace wins in Jesus Christ, our ascended Lord. Amen.